Welcome to Rehash, a Web3 podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Season 3 of Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen. And in our first episode of the season, we're speaking with our number two crowdfund backer, who also happens to be a DAO aficionado. Today, we have Denison Bertram, founder of Tally, with us to chat about all things DAO operations, something that he's been thinking a lot about and working on building better tools for at Tally, a DAO operations platform that makes it easier to start, join, and grow decentralized organizations. But before we dive into our conversation with Denison, here's a quick word from the Web3 projects that helped make this season possible. Web2 Social has become a world of walled gardens, where platforms own your data, your content, and your community. But Lens Protocol is a community garden, a user-owned, composable, and decentralized ecosystem designed to let Web3 social apps bloom. When you create content on Lens, you own it, you control it, you take it with you from app to app, and you decide how it's monetized. Instead of chasing ads and algorithms, you set the value of your work and your community collects it directly from you. Here at Rehash, we'll be experimenting with this ourselves by posting all content from season three on Lens, where our community can now truly interact and grow with us. So bring your photos and videos, your GMs and your friends, and come join the new era of social media on Lens Protocol. Go to claim.lens.xyz to claim the last social media handle you'll ever need. And be sure to follow rehash.lens. Contributing to a DAO can feel like this. Contributing to several DAOs can feel like this. But it doesn't have to. With Avenue, you can filter out the noise, get to know more DAOs, and start contributing right away. Avenue allows contributors to form organic teams to work together on the things they love. This means DAOs can operate, coordinate, and collaborate at a scale that used to be impossible. Because working together in a DAO should be like making music. The drummers drum, the singers sing, and when collaboration leads the way, a song emerges. No more relying on the core team to get things done. It's time to get your community contributing. To give your DAO the information they need to know, the tools they need to self-organize, and the spaces they need to work together, visit avenue.place. Hey guys, thanks for hopping on here. I just wanted to touch base real quick. What's up, Diane? What's up? So first of all, I just wanted to say thanks, Tyler, for taking these meeting notes. They look great. Uh, I didn't take those. I'll take credit for it, though. Wait, that wasn't you? Do we know who it was? And who's been posting those hilarious meme videos on our Twitter? Oh, I have no idea. Uh, there's a lot going on here, though. Like, how are we supposed to keep up with what everyone's doing? I don't know. It feels like pure chaos being in a DAO sometimes. Ellie, what was that thing you were talking about that helps DAO contributors like add and organize all of their contributions? Oh yeah, it's called Govern. It's like GitHub for DAO contributors. Ooh, that sounds cool. How does it actually work? Yeah, so it's actually a protocol where DAO members can add any task they've completed as a contribution. And then their fellow DAO members can attest to them to confirm that those contributions were valid without the need for a core team to do so. What you end up with is a simple bottom-up way for members to build out the DAO's contribution graph themselves. It gives contributors more power and freedom, it makes it a lot easier to accurately reward everyone, DAO members actually own all of their contributions, so if they want to jump into another DAO, they can actually prove they know their stuff. Okay, okay, I'm sold. Um, can it be on-chain? 
Of course, but on Gnosis Chain, so transactions are super cheap. Ooh. All right, yeah, I'm down. Diane? Yeah, for sure, let's set it up. Uh, what's the link, Ellie? Just go to govern.app, and that's govern without the E, so G-O-V-R-N dot app. Perfect. All right, well, if you guys got this, I got to jump back to another call. Hey, Dennison, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Great. Uh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Of course. So I, I first of all, before we dive into your background or anything, I have to thank you for contributing to our crowdfund in such a big way. I can't believe it's already been about four months since we kicked that off, but so much has happened over the last four months. And I'm just glad that you're able to come on the podcast now and tell us all about Tally because a lot has changed with Tally too in the last four months. And I can't wait to hear all about it. So first, before I do say anything else, thank you so much for being one of our biggest supporters. Uh, my pleasure. Very cool uh, to, to be a part of it. Awesome. So for anybody who doesn't know you, can you start off by just telling people a little bit about your background? What were you doing before Web3 and how did you first get interested in Web3? Uh, yeah, sure. So my story tends to be a bit longer than most just because I've been in the space for a long time. Like it's going on. 10 years, uh, maybe more than 10 years now. So I originally got into uh, Web3 and to blockchain because of Bitcoin. And I ran the first Bitcoin exchange in the Czech Republic or one of the first Bitcoin exchanges in the Czech Republic in uh, 2012. So I've been in the space for a really long time. Uh, in general, though, I come from kind of an unexpected background for, for crypto. For a long time, I was a very well-known fashion photographer, and I had this creative technology company where I helped fashion brands move into the digital space because at the time, fashion uh, wasn't yet something that was in the digital realm. And so I, I you know, built a company doing um, basically that, helping helping these like brands move there. But I read the Bitcoin white paper pretty early on. It really snapped for me. It really resonated. It was just like, okay, this is something that is going to be important. Uh, so I got involved in it very early. I've seen a lot of different waves of Web3, of blockchain. It's been a really crazy long ride. So I've just been in crypto for a very long time. I was a little bit late to Ethereum, which is, you know, to my eternal regret. I think I was a Bitcoin maximalist for a bit too long. But I eventually did come around on Ethereum and really came around on the idea of like decentralized organizations and 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 DAOs and like how they could bring so much value to um, not just the digital space but also the 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 IRL space. And you know, I've just been excited and into it ever since. That's awesome. I think crypto Twitter would be upset if I didn't ask you this, but are you still a Bitcoin maxi? And especially now that you're a builder on, you know, I mean, Tally is on Ethereum, Polygon, Arbitrum, Optimism, all these different chains. Where do you stand today with your Bitcoin maximalism or lack thereof? Yeah, I'm definitely not a Bitcoin maximalist anymore. There was a period in time when things like smart contracts felt very real for Bitcoin early into color coins, into counterparty, master coin, projects like this that were bringing smart contracts to Bitcoin. There was in the early days a different feeling about what Bitcoin would become. And it kind of, in my opinion, and a lot of like Bitcoin maxes will disagree, it kind of stopped developing too soon, I think. It became too valuable too fast. And then this sort of narrative about like ultra hard money became the, the dominant narrative. And it kind of stopped being for me, 
as exciting in terms of like developments, right? Like people, people tend to like freak out on me about that and stuff, but Bitcoin is largely the same experience today that I had 10 years ago. So, you know, for me, it just stopped moving forward in terms of like innovation. Ethereum today, or the EVM more specifically, is just so accessible, right? It's so accessible, it's so flexible, it's so powerful. It's not perfect, you know, by no means is it perfect, but I tend to be a very practical person and like, there's that sort of saying like perfect is enemy of the good and and ethereum is good it's it's really good and it has this just you know i used to be a developer advocate for open zeppelin and um that was you know quite a while ago but the sort of superpower that ethereum has is all these devs in the space who are looking to build all these cool things many of these cool things aren't possible to build on Bitcoin, or if they are, or would be extremely complicated to build on Bitcoin. And so they've sort of become like different use cases, which is interesting because in many ways, one could like do the job of the other if like that, you know, things were a little bit different, right? Like you certainly say like ETH is ultra hard money, but that's not really what like the Ethereum sort of like pitch is. And, you know, Bitcoin certainly could have smart contracts. There was, there was smart contract functionality in Bitcoin from the very beginning and that was, it was disabled pretty early on. Uh, so it could have had like a different sort of future too, if things had worked out a little differently. So today I'm not really a maximalist of any sort anymore. I have a personal preference for Ethereum, a personal preference for, for the EVM, mostly because it is so flexible and it is so dominant and so just accessible to, to developers, right? Like it's not so complicated to learn. And additionally, like, you know, Vitalik early on made Ethereum such a welcoming place. For many people, that, that's sort of like another reason why I fell out of love with Bitcoin. The, the Bitcoin experience became a little bit toxic. And I think a lot of people feel that way. The, the Bitcoin community did become toxic in many places in a way that Ethereum wasn't. So Ethereum sort of continued to welcome the oddballs and the weirdos. There's this tweet that I made a, a while ago that was very popular where basically I said, you know, you know, Vitalik made sure that you weren't the weirdest person in the room. And because of that, you felt welcomed. And that's, that's truly been Ethereum's kind of superpower ever since. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not a maxi anymore because it's sort of like closed-minded thinking, but certainly Ethereum today seems to me like the dominant, obvious place to build something for the future. Yeah, maybe Satoshi would have done that too if they were still around, but uh, thank you for clearing that up for our Twitter followers. I think they'll really appreciate that answer. And now sort of shifting gears and moving into the DAO stuff. So you get interested in decentralized organizations, and at some point along the way, you realize that DAO operations is sort of this big area where DAOs really need help. Where do you see mm. DAOs struggling the most with operations today? Well, you know, there's a couple different pieces to operations. Like operations kind of implies that you already have an organization that is to one way or another like functioning. So for operations, really DAOs are struggling with a specific kind of engagement, like positive sum constructive engagement. And they are struggling a lot on their tooling. You know, the, the DAO tooling space has kind of exploded and there's like a Swiss army knife of like everything where you can like find something for everything, but everything is like not really fully a solution. So it's almost like the needs of DAOs are out ahead of the tooling, actually. So that is quite complicated there. But also I think there are some real world challenges, which are sort of like around the legal challenges of DAOs. So th there's a lot, there's a lot. Beyond legal challenges, I think there's also just like a social understanding of what DAOs are. I, I find that there's a lot of people that don't still understand what DAOs are. There's a lot of people who have been 
burned by DAOs in a strange way, or where like there's organizations that sort of they're not DAOs, but they sort of call themselves DAOs. So there, there are people who have been burned by organizations that sort of represent themselves as DAOs. And then internally doing work, getting stuff done is very complicated. And also like paying people properly is very hard to do in DAOs, uh, especially today when token prices are really down, right? So there were a number of problems that were lurking beneath the surface when token prices were really high, but you know everyone had a lot of money, so it didn't really feel so so urgent. But now that token prices are low and people have to make hard decisions, the decisions get harder. Just to clarify, can you give an example of an organization that's calling themselves a DAO but not operating as a DAO, or how do you define a DAO? Like, what are the factors or the things that it needs to have in order for it to qualify? you know, by your definition as a DAO, because everybody's got a different definition. And now there's so many different kinds of DAOs, like there are social DAOs that arguably, you know, can exist as just a social club and they don't need a token and they don't need to have all of these other things. So I'd love to hear your definition of it, just so we're on the same page when we're talking about this. Yeah. So uh, first of all, I'm not going to call out any DAOs that uh, call themselves DAOs and aren't DAOs. They know who they are. And to your final point there, there are a lot of organizations that aren't really DAOs, like social DAOs, but it's okay. You don't have to, in my opinion, be completely 100% a decentralized organization right now to call yourself a DAO, right? Like DAO is also kind of like a movement or a vibe about how you want to structure your organization or your community. And I think that's okay, right? Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be truly, totally decentralized. The, the sort of unfortunate thing is, you know, the sort of grayness about the definition of DAO has led a number of bad actors to sort of like come in amongst the good actors and behave and sort of shroud themselves in the the, the terminology of DAOs. But then when, you know, the shit really hits the fan, they, they don't behave like a DAO, right? And, you know, this is, this is very tricky where, you know, you see organizations that use, for example, off-chain voting, where, you know, the advantage is that it's, like, cheap and it's, like, free to vote, uh, but the teams don't enforce the votes or they don't really care. Like, there, there's kind of this, you know, Henry Ford famously said about the Model T, uh, the consumer can have it in any color they want as long as it's black. And there are a number of organizations that are designed with that in mind, where, the voters can have whatever they want as long as we agree with it. And those aren't really DAOs, right? And th- there are a number of like financial organizations, particularly where the DAO part is very critical, right? If you're a social DAO and it's just like, hey, this is Denison DAO and you get some tokens, we'll give you Denison token and like, we'll vote. Like, yeah, maybe sometimes I- I'll do what you want and maybe sometimes I won't, right? Like it's a social DAO and maybe in this case, it's like a personal tribe DAO, right? Like where it's just like, oh, we're all following Denison. That, that's kind of fine, that setup, right? Because it's kind of a different kind of promise and expectation, right? I've, I've definitely like participated in DAOs before where, um, you know, I worked on a project before with an artist where one of the first thing the community wanted to do was destroy the artist's work. And I was just like, well, no, right? Like that's, the, yeah, you know, here this community is like for this, but like, that's not what this is about. It's a little bit different. You know, you see, you know, there've been like a number of like financial organizations or financial DAOs where the will of the people isn't followed. And that's really problematic. There's also a number of organizations that are very DAO focused, like this is a DAO, but there isn't actually any on-chain component beyond like 
sort of like levels of multi-sigs. And that is just really these individuals who get to make all these decisions. So, you know, without calling out people, there's this like structure of a DAO where if you don't have true accountability to the people who are participating, but maybe you're also profiting or holding a lot of the assets or funds of these people, it can really get gray as to what that's about. If it's a social DAO or an art DAO, I think there's a lot more flexibility around that. I think there, the definition really revolves more on this intention of like having this relationship with the collectors, having the relationship with the community. But, you know, if it's like a financial protocol, it's, you can't really just claim that, well, we just have like a relationship with the community. You know, people who are providing, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into this protocol that's doing something very important for them to to think that they're in an organization that they have some sort of like power in an organization and not is a little bit of a difficult um, situation, right? And you see that. You see that actually with a lot of different different organizations where they're ostensibly DAOs, but the way the structure has been set up, token holders can't actually enforce anything. And if the token holders aren't the sort of like decider of last resort, then, you know, what were they really there for in the first place, right? And I think this is actually becoming really relevant with the SEC, right? We saw sort of recently um, people started talking about what the SEC is starting to think about DAOs in particular, and they called out a number of DAOs as not being decentralized organizations or being DAOs where like a few people actually made all the had all the decision making power. And there's a funny test that they mentioned called like the Bahamas test, where if the founders run away to the Bahamas, can the organization survive? Right? Well, can it continue to operate with like the the, the community? And I think there's a number of uh, you know financial DAO organizations that that's not true. Yeah. And just for some of our more beginner listeners who aren't as familiar with DAOs, could you explain when you say that DAOs need to have more of an on-chain component than just a a multi-sig? Because there's this meme that's been going around for a long time that a DAO is just a group of friends with a joint bank account, like a multi-sig essentially. So, you know, for people who are, you know, spending most of their time in the memes and not actually in DAOs operating, can you explain what is the proper way to set up a DAO so that decision-making can actually be decentralized? And feel free to use Tally as an example, because I know that's something that Tally solves for. Sure, sure. So the first part of your question is a bunch of friends with a bank account. That can be a DAO, right? 10 friends get together, they launch a Gnosis safe, and if six out of 10 of them agree to do something, the Gnosis safe will execute it on chain. That is a DAO. And that's decentralized within the context of these 10 members, right? And they know that the Ethereum network and the Gnosis safe smart contracts will enforce the decision that six out of 10 of them take. And they know that is for a fact. Solid. The right way to make a DAO, and now, for the beginner listeners out there, this doesn't necessarily have to be the right way from day one, right? Like there are steps towards moving it. But the right way to have a DAO is, in our opinion, at least, is using the Open Zeppelin governor contract with a token, whether that's an NFT or an ERC-20, where one token bestows upon the holder one vote, right? And the idea here is with the Open Zeppelin governor using Tally, you can use Tally, there are other services, but using Tally, if at least a certain number of people vote yes on a decision, 
this decision will happen on the Ethereum network. It'll happen. It'll, it'll execute on the smart contract, right? What that means is decisions, political decisions, or like, you know, spending decisions or all these things, you understand exactly what will happen. If somebody says, pay Denison all the money in the treasury and 60% of the people vote yes, then Denison gets paid all the money in the treasury. But if 49% of people vote yes, Denison will not get all the money in the treasury. But we know this for certain, right? I cannot influence the outcome of this, right? As long as people have a fairly even distribution of tokens, right? What some people do is they use off-chain voting tools to say, hey, community, what would you like us to eat? Pizza or broccoli? And the community votes 60% pizza. And they say, okay, the people voted for 60% pizza. We're going to eat pizza. But these votes on these off-chain voting things have no enforceability in blockchain land, in Web3. They're, they're polls, right? And they're very useful in the life cycle of making early decisions. Like, yeah, we're thinking about doing this. What do people think? We're thinking about doing that. What do people think? But when it comes down to deciding if we're eating pizza or broccoli, if the people vote for pizza, the four of us or 10 of us on the multi-sig, we can go, nah, we kind of want broccoli, right? Or we can just ignore it completely. And they'd be like, nah, we're not going to eat anything. Or we can go ahead and make decisions without even asking the community. And this is a very important thing. With on-chain governance, all decisions must be made collectively by the community. With governances that are a com combination of some sort of off-chain voting plus a multi-sig, the people on the multi-sig can make decisions without ever asking the community at all, right? So they can make any decision that they want. The voting part maybe is informative, but they're not actually bound to those decisions, right? So when things are going fine, right, when things are going well and, and the, the team is executing all the things that the, the people who vote on the off-chain voting vote for, all is well. But if the, the community votes for something that the team doesn't want, for example, to fire the team, maybe maybe the community says, hey, we've given you $100 million. This is going terribly. Uh, we want to fire you because we want to replace you with someone else. Well, is the team on the multi-sig going to do that? Are they going to say, sure, we're going to fire ourselves? In a lot of cases, the answer is no, right? So when it comes down to really important decisions, the off-chain governance solution of this, like friends with a nose to safe with like, uh, you know, an off-chain voting solution, um, you know, because it's free or it's cheap or it's easy, that doesn't actually work in hard times. It works in good times because it just so happened everybody wanted a black Model T. But the moment they want like a red Model T, the deal's off. Makes sense. Yeah. Thank you for explaining all of that. So going back then to what we were talking about earlier with some of the challenges that DAOs face with operations, and you named quite a few and different areas that there's legal challenges, there's, you know, getting work done, there's paying people, there's coordinating, all of these things. Are these the same challenges that we see in traditional companies and traditional organizations? Or are these new challenges? Uh, in, in many cases, I think a lot of these are the same challenges, but corporate structures have a longer history to draw from. But at the same time, depending on the nature of it, the outcome of things that happen in corporate structures might be hard to predict, right? With things like on-chain governance, 
When someone makes a proposal and people vote and the majority of people vote yes to something, you know that this thing is going to happen. You don't have those sort of assurances in the corporate world. Instead, in the corporate world, you have to rely upon the legal system as the enforcer of uh, agreements or decisions in, in corporate structures. Things like paying people in corporations, that's pretty worked out, and there are great tools around that. In Dowland, that can be pretty difficult, right? A common problem that comes up is Dows are very global, right? They're very international. People live and work from everywhere. So there can be difficulties in compensating individuals because sometimes you have individuals who live in San Francisco whose compensation needs to be very different than someone who's living in the Philippines, right? And communities have sometimes have a difficult time coming to terms with the fact that pay scales for people around the world are very different. So you get a lot of arguing around like how much people should be paid. Uh, there's a little bit of uncertainty about when folks get paid, right? And DAOs are a little bit different than companies. Companies, you hire people and you fire people. Uh, in organizations like DAOs, people sort of like arrive and offer to help. And then people, they lose interest or they don't do a good job or there's just not like a culture fit with the DAO and then, and then they leave. But what ends up happening is, is that a lot of times people have to do work before they get paid. And that's because we live in, you know, the sort of like blockchain ethos of the Web3 ethos is, is trust but verify. And there's this idea that all these people out there are kind of unknown and it's up to the contributors to show their willingness to do something first, right? They they have to produce the work first before the community pays them because the sort of prevailing mindset around DAO members tends to be like, oh, well, if we pay them first, they'll never do the work. Right. But what that actually leaves uh, contributors with is sometimes a bit of anxiety about whether or not they're going to get paid because they have to do the work first and then say, hey, will you pay me for it? And that, of course, can set up uh, some, you know, uncomfortable situations where, you know, maybe some of the DAO feels like the payment's too large or like people are just like, you know, generally like not paying attention. So they don't come through to pay people. Um, so these challenges, there are like a whole set of challenges that are very similar to companies, and then a whole set of challenges that are like very different. But then DAOs on top of that, like beyond operations have like oh, layers and layers of other kinds of challenges. Totally. Do you think there are any tried and true practices that we've developed in traditional companies over the decades that DAOs can really take a page out of their book and learn from. For example, you were saying in traditional companies, if somebody's not doing the job well, you just fire them, you hire and fire them, and that's sort of how it goes. In DAOs, it's different. It's a lot more fluid. It's a lot more open. But at the same time, if you have a contributor who maybe is an excellent contributor for the first three months, but then they, you know, something happens, they they just stop doing what they say they're going to do. They stop being a good team player. There should also be some way of offboarding them from the DAO in a way in which, you know, no one's feelings get hurt, that relationships are still more or less intact, and that everybody is compensated fairly for the work that they have done. So is this something that we can, we as in DAOs, could learn from traditional companies, maybe, you know, with the way that larger companies offboard people that they fire by 
giving them a severance package or maybe by doing an exit interview to learn about their experience. I think that could actually be really helpful in DAOs because everybody has such a different experience at this time. And if DAOs can better understand people's experiences, maybe it's because the contributor was having a bad experience or had a bad interaction with somebody that they decided to stop doing the work. Do you think there's, you know, there are things like that, that DAOs can learn from corporations instead of just writing them off as like, we're DAOs, we're way cooler than corporations, we don't do things the way they do? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things that come to mind first is a code of conduct and like a code of ethics. You know, something that larger, some of the larger DAOs deal with is harassment right, where you have these large communities of like strangers coming together, building things. And some of the failure to be like polite or considerate of other people that exist in the internet space creeps into DAOs, right? Because DAOs are internet native, but people sometimes forget that it is also a work environment, right? And that there are like norms and behaviors between colleagues that need to be observed. There's one DAO that I, I created called Pride Punks, where um, early on, there wasn't like 100% alignment between all the, the, the people who joined up to participate, where some folks wanted to do something, some folks wanted to do something else. But the main goal of the organization was to sort of like bring some sort of visibility and support to like uh, the LGBTQ plus community in Web3 right? Like to be like a more queer friendly space in general. And not everyone who, who showed up participated was actually inter interested in that, right? And so there were a lot of like difficult comments and difficult discussions and difficult behavior in, in members. And um, at the end of the day, you know, I'm kind of like, created this, so, you know, sort of like me who has to like come in and say like, hey, this is going to stop. And people would say, oh, um, that censorship, this isn't free speech. And it was like, well, you know, this actually isn't a free speech zone. This is a, about this zone. Like the internet is full of free speech zones, but like where free speech like goes against the sort of like missions and goals, like sort of set out by like this group of people, we're actually not interested in that because it makes it an unpleasant experience for other people in that, right? And for larger DAOs, this can be really a big problem because there isn't anyone imbued with like the sort of authority to be like, no, you can't say that or you can't speak like that. So you could end up having a situation where people disagree, which is entirely normal, but the language that they use to express disagreement could cause a lot of strife and stress on other members, right? We know how people speak on the internet. We know as people talk um, in forums. And when people are actually contributing because that's like their job and they enjoy doing it and they enjoy the community, sometimes community members can have unrealistic expectations and they can respond in ways that are very like, very difficult for other members to like experience. So, you know, in, in corporate environments, there's a lot of things that you just can't do. Right. It doesn't really matter if you're right. Like if you do X or you speak like X, you're getting fired, period, even if you're right. And in DAOs, sometimes, especially in the larger DAOs, there's, there ends up needing to be someone like policing 
the, the behavior of folks. And that's a very thankless job. So I, I think norms of behavior is something that we can definitely learn from corporations. Also, I think like a lot of accountability, accounting, right? Like sometimes DAOs aren't really great at like centralizing all their spending. Hey, where did the money go? What did we spend it on? Why? What happened to it after we did it? Partially because a lot of these are like contributors, right? Um, so, you know, it's, it's very difficult for a DAO to say, hey, we have a limited amount of money. Let's spend a big chunk on it on some real world accountant, right? Like people are like, well, we'd rather spend this on something cool. Uh, so yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of like boring things about corporations that uh, certainly as DAO scaling it bigger would be very useful to apply. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really like your framing of the free speech thing, because I think a mistake that I see a lot of people in Web3 make is that they take these principles of decentralization and they apply them like without exception across the board mm -hmm. for everything, mm -hmm. everything in mm -hmm. life. And the way you said it, it's like there are free speech zones on the internet and there are, you know, like these core principles of decentralization and core elements that exist in other places. But within each DAO, they can still make their own set of rules that align with mm -hmm. whatever mission and goals that they're trying to accomplish to make sure that they're being as productive and doing it in as positive of a way as they can. And there's nothing wrong with that. That isn't, you know, censoring people. That isn't curbing your free speech. That isn't being, you know, corporate or whatever people want to call it. And right. that's that's all okay. And I, I think that's really important for people in this space to realize. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that is like, I, I want to double click on that for a moment, because that is something that people really don't get. Like when you say that like decentralization creeps into everything they do, absolutely right. Some individuals take it so far that it's like, look, maybe you're right, but there's a real human being on the other end who came here because they were excited about it and they're trying to contribute and they're doing their best. And the way you're expressing being right is really making them unhappy, right? Like really depressing them, really making them not like to be in this community. And corporations tend to be filled with people who don't get along and don't agree and would never hang out in real life. But because of the norms that are required by the corporation, collectively, they can do productive things that are great together. And it's important to understand that you being right in an organization is not the most important thing. And you being able to say whatever you want is not conducive to getting our collective goal done. And a lot of organizations can really fall apart on the sort of importance of that. Yeah, there's the theoretical and then there's the practical, right? And I think where we miss the mark a lot in Web3 is that we're so focused on theory. Like in theory, yes, decentralization is the answer. In theory, we would love to have everything be fully decentralized, but we still exist in a society. You can't take this out of context mm -hmm. of the world that we live mm -hmm. in. You know, we're still human mm -hmm. beings. We're not all robots out there like operating yep. in binary. Turning this kind of like more to the positive side, what are some mm -hmm. organized, some DAOs that you see as a great example of operating in, you know, a, a really good way or like doing a really good job in comparison to other DAOs? Um, so I don't think there are any A-plus DAOs. I'm not sure if really there's any B DAOs. I think we're early. And also, how well do these organizations perform over time? 
right? Every sort of moment in Dow time has some organization that's sort of like just got all the magic together and it's just like really happening. So it's hard to say this one's better than another because also in many ways, like the goals of these organizations are very different, right? It'd be, it's, it's one thing to say, ah, Wendy's is operating just as good as McDonald's. But it's very difficult to say like, you know, Dennis and Dow is operating way better than Uniswap, right? Like, where it's just like me and I'm like, hey guys, what am I going to eat for breakfast? They're like, eggs. I'm like, eggs it is. I was like, well, Dow's amazing. And then, you know, people are contentious in Uniswap, right? The stakes are totally different. The membership is totally different. Certainly Nouns Dow right now is really exciting. I think just the base concept behind it was, was so shrewd and so smart and clever that it's really just like gathering steam constantly. It's like this organization that only self-reinforces. I kind of wonder what the end state is because it just feels like Nouns Dow is becoming like this just like straight up. And and I don't know, that can't last forever. Like what 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 happens? Maybe the whole world wears sunglasses and then it collapses. I don't know. So there's a lot of different organizations. What I think is probably the greater indicator of Dow health or like Dow coolness is how these Dows deal with adversary, like uh, how they come back from sort of like the brink. You know, uh, there are organizations that we once were like really crazy bullish on, you know, things like SushiSwap and Yearn, and and they go through challenges, right? Like, and, and they are working through these. And I think, you know, when they come out on the other side, they will be much different organizations and probably much stronger organizations, right? You see, uh, you know, Dope Wars, uh, another DAO that I founded, but it's like this decentralized video game collective. Uh, they went through some difficult times and then they really have been able to like come up with like a new idea about how they're collectively going to work together and how they're going to go forward. Uniswap is has a proposal up on Tally right now on creating the Uniswap Foundation, which is uh, really exciting. You know, I think the past few weeks, ever since the tornado cash uh, being sanctioned thing, has really changed the color on a lot of DAOs and organizations. I think people start to feel the oh yeah decentralization right that was important to sort of wrap up a lot of what we've talked about today. What are you most bullish on with DAOs? What are you most bearish on? And what is one thing that you're really excited about that you see developing? So I'm really excited about everyone making a DAO. I think they are a better corporate structure and they are so much more flexible that if you're not really going to make a corporation anyway, you could still have a DAO, right? Your, your DAO could just be Lemonade Stand DAO and that's fine and that's super cool. Uh, and Lemonade Sandow could launch a token and become a, you know, top 10 project, right? And it could still use the same structure, right? Like in this case, I'm always a fan of the Open Zeppelin governor contract, um, which is token voting that can scale from one member to a million members, right? So I find that exciting. This future where people make more DAOs, find more ways to apply them. You know, I'm super, super uh, into social DAOs like Serif, which is a, a LGBTQ plus DAO that has also a physical component. Um, and they have this really diverse community of like artists and creators who basically work together and they're going to have a physical space. You know, you look at DAOs like FWB, which are kind of these hybrid organizations that, that are really sort of like leading the cultural space as well. So, you know, really excited about how all these sorts of like organizations get built. Uh, on top of that, I think things that I'm bearish about for DAOs 
is I think for the moment there's a there, there's kind of a need to understand better what the legal situation of DAOs is going to be like in the in the future, right? That's very unclear, uh, especially now. I think there's a little bit more of a chill being set over the space for the what the sort of like legal situation of DAOs is going to be. And what was the the final question there? It was uh, most bullish, most bearish, and then what are you most excited to see develop? Yeah, so what I'm most excited to see develop is legal frameworks that we can work with and use for DAOs. Um, that is just going to really supercharge our ability to apply these organizations to lemonade stands, to condo boards, to uh, real corporations. Like that's what's super driving me and really excited about. Yeah, yeah, and and then of course all these experiments that people are creating, things like Joke DAO, things like Nouns DAO. These things are really uh, exciting for me. I love that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dennison. This was great. Last season, if you know listeners are tuning in from past seasons, they would remember that we ended every episode with a, a quick little game. We're playing a new game this season. Last season, we played this or that. This season, we've just got some fun questions for you. And these can be as quick as you want. So no need to really like dive too deep, but they're just fun little questions for us to get to know you and how you think a little bit better. So the first question that I have for you is, you get to rebrand one thing in Web3 and it's guaranteed to stick. What do you rebrand? Web3. What would you call it? I don't know, but like, you know, other people are trying to build Web5. You know, the Web3 doesn't tell users what it is enough, right? Like, Web3, what's Web3? Right, now I got to explain it to you, right? Like, I feel like we should tell people a little bit better, like what we're actually doing and why it's important. What about the decentralized web? Do you like that better? Uh, I do think that's a little bit better, right? Although um, I don't know if people realize it's centralized in the first place. So that would also require yeah, some explanation. Yeah, yeah, that also requires a little explanation. Yeah, for sure. Okay, second question. If you could wave a magic wand and any Web3 app, tool, or protocol would immediately exist, what would that be? Hmm. I think, like, a non-censored, fair, not-used-by-criminals tornado cash. Financial privacy is important. Like, like you have a right to privacy. You know, things like Tornado Cash, maybe it could be built a little differently, maybe it could be branded a little bit differently, but you have a right to privacy. And, you know, there's this chilling effect from the government saying, no, you don't. I couldn't agree more. All right, third question. If Tally were a famous person or animal or character, whether real or made up, from history or pop culture, who would Tally be? Gosh. Whoever created the Dutch East India Company, probably. Oh, okay. I like that framing. That's interesting. Yeah. All right, next one. If money were no issue, would you still be doing what you're doing today or would you be doing something else? Like say you're set financially for life. You have that guarantee. Um, I think I'll still be doing this. You know, this is like the way forward. This is like building the future. You know, this is so important and valuable to me. 
Awesome. And then final question, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? Probably New York. Wow. Okay. I think a lot of listeners will like that. Just because I live in New York. I like living in New York. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dennison. That that's it from my end. Before you go, could you please just tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you and also where they can go to learn more about Tally? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can find more at Tally, tally.xyz. Uh, we also have uh, uh, Twitter, which is tallyxyz. Uh, you can find, we, if you go to our website, you can actually see our Discord. You can join there and ask questions. Um, on the, the site itself, we also have a newsletter that is really awesome. And we do a ton of content, media articles that you can read and learn more about Tally. So yeah, you can also always reach me at Dennison Bertram on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dennison. Thank you listeners for tuning in to our first episode of season three. And we will be back again next week with another episode. See ya. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Rehash, a Web3 podcast. The guest in this episode, Dennison Bertram, secured his spot on the podcast by being the second placed crowdfund backer from our initial Mirror crowdfund, making him one of three Queen of the Pod Rehash NFT holders. Rehash is hosted by Diana Chen, produced and edited by Ellie Dots and Tyler Internet, sponsored by Lens, Avenue, and Govern, and as always, supported by Rehash DAO. To stay up to date on all things Rehash, you can follow us on Twitter at RehashWeb3 and join our Discord to get involved.